0: Over the summer, what we've been talking about in particular is if that's true, if the kingdom of God is here, why is life still so hard? And there are these seasons in Scripture that are very poignant and clear and repetitive among God's people, and that's the season called the wilderness season. Um, The wilderness is something that God leads his people through because he has purpose in it. And so we've been in a series called The Wilderness Reflections, We've had five uh, guest teachers come and walk us through something. I'm excited today to be able to to share and contribute in this series. Um, And so we're gonna be doing that. We're gonna be talking today specifically about how in the wilderness, God leads us through testing. God leads us through testing, okay? Um, In your packet, you have Deuteronomy 8, one through 10 printed out. You can open up in your Bible if you have that. While you're doing that as well, just so you know, uh, there's a QR code on the back of your chairs. You can scan that. If you don't get updates, you want to be on our communication list, you could sign up there. Um, you can do all sorts of things on that. Um, just look at our flow code. Get into the life of community. Uh, give financially, whatever it might be. And uh, now we're going to transition into our reading of Scripture and teaching. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We want to let our bodies lead our souls into remembering the significance that we have God's Word written for us. So I'm going to read this and then we will pray. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 10. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the God, the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the lord your god for the good land he has given you pray with me heavenly father we thank you for your word that through it we hear uh, your voice so clearly that we actually come into contact with you in a way that helps us to know not just what you say commands that you may give declarations you may proclaim but that we actually get to know you yourself and we long for you we hunger for you Um, we believe that in you is where our life is found and so holy spirit we as we gather here as the body of jesus christ in this Small place in a large city, would you please lead us now? Um, I realize my own finitude in being able to speak to every situation and every heart that is in this room, and so would you do your miraculous work of leading each of us and we do pray in light of the liturgical prayer earlier that whatever may be distracting us in our world um constantly vying and fighting for our attention, would you please simply allow us to focus in this place? Help us to bring our burdens, our emotion, um, our joys, all before you and your word now. Teach us, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can take your seats. So, as I mentioned, this is the sixth week going through the series on the wilderness. And it's, it's critically important. If we want to be serious about following Jesus, about not just knowing about him, but becoming like him and, and being useful to him and his purposes in the world, we have to have wisdom about how our Father in heaven leads us through the seasons of life in our formation, that we might understand what he's trying to do in them. So we can't be naive enough to just think that God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. And we have no part to play. We have no unique situational dynamic of understanding uh, what a given season has for us. And the wilderness is so unique in Scripture. The book of Numbers, which is um, just before uh, this book, Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of The Pentateuch, the fifth book in our Old Testament. The book of Numbers is the story of Israel being led through the wilderness. And in Hebrew, the first word of the book of Numbers is actually the Hebrew word for wilderness. It's the book of wilderness. Because the moment God delivered his people from the slavery of Egypt, he shockingly led them into wilderness. He didn't lead them right into the promised land because they weren't ready to go into the promised land that God had for them. And this word wilderness in the Hebrew is rooted in uh, the word speak. Those two words are right there together because in a Hebrew understanding of the wilderness, everything is stripped away that we would actually have the kind of quiet where we can actually hear the leading of God. And so my hope today is that we would just see a few things that God might be leading us in, in this difficult season. And we're just wide open. The last few years have been so hard on a number of fronts. And so welcome to the struggle bus. Like it's difficult and following Jesus doesn't make everything easy. But we need to know that Jesus is still Jesus, and He's with us in the midst of the hard, right? Okay, so let's, let's dive in. Um, first thing I want for us to notice in Deuteronomy 8, that our Heavenly Father's chief purpose in the wilderness, one of them, is to test us. We see that really clearly in verse number 2. It says right here, um, this is Moses speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, you shall remember, in verse 2, the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Two fundamental postures that a human being can have toward God. Okay, Really clear humility where we place ourselves beneath god or pride where we seek to place god beneath us here what moses is saying is a is a a kind of a look in reverse to say you notice he says you lose to 40 years um if you're not familiar with the story of israel in the old testament the most brief synopsis i could give They were enslaved in Egypt. They they were delivered mightily. Maybe you've seen some of the movies where they walk through the Red Sea and then the Red Sea comes crashing down on the Egyptian army. They're liberated from slavery to follow the living God out into the promised land that he has promised them. But then three days after they're delivered miraculously from slavery, from a pursuing army, they start grumbling because they're wondering where the heck in this wilderness they're going to get their food from. And it's so revealing of our hearts, of of humanity's hearts, that we can witness and experience the most profound work of God. Miraculous deliverance. They saw with their own eyes. Literally, like, imagine. Walls of water walking through the mud that is still sopping wet. And looking back and watching it collapse on the pursuing army. God that can do that shouldn't have any issues providing you with some food, right? Right? This is, this is dynamic, okay? Yeah, okay. I just wanna make sure we're on the same page so that I don't need to do any more work there. Um, yeah, he should be able to do a simpler thing. And yet what happens is the people start grumbling and they start accusing Moses of leading them out to their death in the wilderness. And so God works with them and eventually tests them, and they fail the test. And so he says, this whole generation is going to die in the wilderness before I bring you into the promised land. Leads them in circles out in the desert for 40 years. That whole generation passes away. Moses brings them to the Jordan River, and he says, look, that's where we're going. And God's like, no, but you're not going. You're going to die here. I'm going to let Joshua lead the people in. This this book is Moses' last words up until, I believe, Deuteronomy 24, where it actually records his own death. So here we have God explaining what he was doing with the people over those 40 years. Because here is the problem for every human being on this side of the fall of humanity from communion with God that we were created for in the garden. Um, We think we know what's going on in our hearts. But when difficulty comes, we're actually revealed about what was in our hearts. Soren Kierkegaard said, most men, he's a philosopher, Danish philosopher of the 20th century, most men are subjective toward themselves and objective toward all others. Frightfully objective sometimes, but the task is precisely to be objective towards oneself and subjective toward all others. Uh, you'll notice it's so normal around us for someone to say, you know, they might they might do something to harm you, to wrong you, make some sort of outrageous error, sometimes very publicly. I mean, we've all seen and heard of celebrities that say something that is heinous. And what do they commonly say? I didn't mean that, that's not me, that's not what was in my heart. That's bad anthropology. Jesus himself said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, this is dynamic, speaks. Yeah, what comes out of your mouth is actually, most of the time, a perfect representation of what's actually down there. And wilderness seasons, seasons of scarcity, of difficulty, of pain, confusion, actually place on our hearts a kind of pressure cooker that stirs up what's really down there, but sometimes a little bit more latent. That's why Proverbs says, um, oh, I just blanked on it. Proverbs says something about this. (laughs) The furnace for gold, the crucible for silver, and so the praise of man tests the heart of man. In the same way that the crucible and the furnace purify gold and silver praise tests us that's interesting right that how you respond when you get accolades is actually a test of what's really in your hearts in the same way the wilderness tests us so maybe the question for us here is how do we respond to the difficulty of life in this season what do you what do you go to Um, when you struggle, when your day is just going badly, when you're afraid of, you know, we've gone through all sorts of things to cast fear on us from COVID and thinking that every person that you talk to on the street is going to make you deathly ill to to anger about narratives, politics, racial injustice, whatever it might be. Some of these things are, are very real and valid, but our response to them can be revealing. Maybe for you it's anger. right? We, we do First Tuesday fast once a month. Where we as a church fast through breakfast and lunch. And a lot of us get angry very easily when we're disrupted by the simple fact of being hungry all day. It could be anger. It could be sorrow. Maybe you just kind of collapse inward. Self-pity, pride, whatever it might be. The wrong response in the wilderness is to deny what is revealed. To downplay what is revealed. Because it's an anti-gospel thing to see what is in us and to try and turn away and deny it. As followers of Jesus, we believe fundamentally that grace and mercy has been poured out in Jesus. That there's nothing that could come out of us that can separate us from Him any longer. And here's the the real thing. If we we turn our eyes away from us or deny what is really in us, then we actually are turning our eyes from further beauty in Jesus that we're invited to see. Because even though it might be new news to us or our community, what comes out of us in the wilderness, um, God is not ever surprised by what comes out of us, right? Like That's the us that Jesus loved and came for. That the Father said, I want you as my child, as my daughter, as my son. And if you're like me and your ego gets puffed up and then you make some idiotic uh, mistake or sin or whatever it might be, and you're like, I never thought I would do that. Spirit almost comes around, puts his arm around you. I don't know how that would work inside of us, but Jesus comes alongside and says, Yeah, and that's that's the you that I love. Our response is humility. It's just right here. God's purpose in the wilderness, in seasons of testing, is to cultivate humility in us. That's what he says, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments are not. And then in verse three, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Um, we tend to think that humility is nice to have, but not so much essential to have. Almost like it's an optional add-on to a fulfilled human life. But here's why God prioritizes it so much throughout all of scripture. Only when we are humble can we rightly live with God and neighbor. All failure to love God and love people ultimately gets down into a root of pride that wants to center ourselves in our life, to kick God to the side or just like a little bit off to the side so that we can kind of think that we're okay. And humility is the soil that mature following of Jesus can grow healthily in. Pride is the kind of soil that will kill any fruit that grows up in your life. Okay? Humility, first thing, that God tests us. And as we participate with God, humble ourselves to say, that, I guess that really is me. We actually get a greater sense of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Because he's still our Savior. He's still our Lord. He's still working and giving us mercy through our life. That's number one. The second thing, God tests us to teach us holistically. We don't need to just be aware of ourselves. We need to be aware of who he is and what he's doing in the world. That's what verse 3 communicates to us when he says, He humbled you, let you hunger, fed you with manna, which you did not know, that, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. Isn't that interesting? Like God's radically committed to his people, making them know something. (laughs) Because it's essential knowledge. That he might make you know, and here is the lesson, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus cites this in Luke 4, in Matthew 3, when he's led out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, right? When he says, turn this rock into bread, Jesus says, it is written, and shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, for us to understand this properly, we need to have an understanding of God's word properly. What he's not saying here is, I don't have a paper Bible up here, I would hold it up if I did. He's not saying that man lives by this merely. He's not saying that man lives by Scripture alone. Scripture is a portion of the theology of the doctrine of the Word of God, but also in the New Testament, for instance, Jesus is the incarnate Word, right? Um, God rules over the universe by His Word, Isaiah says, that His Word goes forth and does not return void to Him. Those are never mere allusions to scripture unless it's abundantly clear from the context that it's just talking about the written word. So what is going on here is God's lesson that he is committed to his people, to learning in the wilderness, when scarcity, fear, testing is all around us, is that we would not be tempted to thinking our circumstances are out of God's control. God rules and reigns by the speaking of his word. He upholds the universe by the word of its power. And isn't it, if we're just so honest, isn't it terrifying when our circumstances are really hard and we're trying to follow Jesus? Here are a few different kinds of of tests, I think, that come to us. This is not exhaustive at all. Um, this is just to try and make it alive to us. Things that come at us in the wilderness um, fear, trusting God when something that we desire is threatened. Um, fear is enslaving, if we will listen to it. Hebrews 2 says that Satan actually grips us through fear of death, that he actually controls us by speaking fear into our hearts. And in the lives of the Israelites, they didn't have food, they didn't have water. They had to go and pass through territory that was owned by people that that were hostile to them, physical safety, perceptions of others, social fear, right? Fear of rejection. I think oftentimes in our context, we're we're here probably either to get a degree, a postdoc, a, a, a whatever it might be, you professional career. So many of us have invested so much in our vocational. Calling that that thing is a non-negotiable in our life anymore. We say, "Jesus, I want to follow you. I can sing the songs. I can read through the liturgical prayer, whatever it might be." But like, just just make sure, like, don't talk to this thing. Like, if I end up a failure in the eyes of the world in my vocational ladder, I don't even want to call it vocational. Vocation is more robust than just your occupation. In my occupational ladder, a doctor, a dentist, an author, whatever it might be, if I'm a failure there, I'll just be undone. I can't live any longer. Right? Many of us live by that kind of fear. If you're a student, an undergrad, and finals week rolls around, I think you can never invest too much into studying for finals week. But ultimately, here's the thing. Fear will never go away. It will just move if you respond to it. It's never satisfied. That's the way that idols or false gods rule over us. They're never satisfied. And so when we're tempted by fear in the wilderness, walking with God and relying upon him to be our protection is what he's inviting us to see. That his word rules over our circumstances in such a way that familiar with the story of Jericho. Okay? Same Israelite people are walking through the wilderness, and there's this huge military outpost that's going to oppose them. And God says, walk around. You're not going to take swords. You're not going to take shields. You're going to take musical instruments. And what I'm going to have you do is walk all the way around seven times. They walk around seven times. He says, shout. They shout, the walls fall down. It wasn't their words that caused it to fall. It was the word of God. So fear, maybe fear rules you and me. Um, Freedom. Freedom. We treasure freedom as Americans. We idolize freedom as Americans. And in the church, we oftentimes will say, you can't tell me to obey. I'll opt into the commands of Jesus freely. But here's the thing. Freedom is always a test. Always. Because it reveals what's in our hearts almost more clearly than a lot of other things. Because when we have the opportunity to love God and love neighbor freely because we have all the resources and time, it's a test. So the money that we have is given to us and we get a choice about whether we're going to love God and neighbor or whether we're going to hem ourselves in, seek comfort, whatever it might be. Time can do the same thing. We can flood our calendar with things that are centered upon us and just say, the, the like revered statement, "Oh, I can't do that, my calendar's book, right? Like the, This calendar is almost a sacred cow over our time now, where we can never say like, "Oh, you're not available." Can you make yourself available? It's just like, oh, shoot, well, let's just find something else. And it might just be, oh, I have a date with me on the couch and Breaking Bad finale, whatever it might be. Um, some freedoms, Ray Ortland says, when we use them, will end up enslaving us. Some freedoms, when we use them, will end up enslaving us. And here's the thing. It's different for each of us. For some of us, money is going to be a snare. Um, I'll never forget when I was support raising to go into ministry, I had to raise money from friends and family and churches, and I met with a guy who had a lot of money, and he was the most generous man I've ever met in my life, and he said, He gave a huge monthly amount of support to me. And I said, my goodness, Birch, are you kidding me? And he says, I've learned that money grabs me, grabs my heart. And if I don't give it away, something goes off in me. And I get entangled in it. My cares go through the roof. I'm miserable. I'm not dependent on God anymore. And so what I've learned is I just can't keep it to myself. That's a wise man. That's a wise Jesus follower. And so for you, it might not be money. You might be the easiest thing in the world for you to give away 20, 30% of your income to all sorts of different things. But it could be, it is something else. And the last thing I'll say, trial in the wilderness, suffering. Suffering tests us in the wilderness. And I want to be really sensitive to say, Waiting on God in seasons of suffering is one of the most difficult places to live as a human being. Because we see the vision of what God is, who He is rather, what He says, His promises, and we feel the brokenness. And if doubt doesn't come up in you when you're suffering, to me... It seems a little bit like you gotta be like detached from what you're going through and not holding on to both at the same time. Now it is not an anti-Christian response. Choosing to walk away from Jesus is an anti-Christian response. We wanna be able to hold on to both of those things in the midst of suffering. Two types of suffering, really simply. The first is getting something in your life that you don't want. It could be medical, physical suffering, it could be relational suffering, all sorts of different things. The second is not getting What we do want, I'm paraphrasing Elizabeth Elliott, super wise author from a few decades ago. Those two types of suffering are well represented in this room. I am confident of that. The question is, are we able to wait upon God rather than look to other things in the world to deliver us in disobedience to God? Like, if, if you have a headache, there's nothing wrong with taking some aspirin. Right? We're not saying that. But when we run out of circumstances and away from obedience to Jesus in order to alleviate our suffering, we're not participating with what God is desiring to do in the midst of our suffering. A few weeks ago, Aaron walked us through Job and the profound degree of suffering. So you can go back and you can listen to that. Very wise and helpful. But the thing that I want to put before us is that in our suffering, God is always seeking to teach us to pray. Always seeking to teach us to pray in the midst of suffering. Because when we suffer, our emotional world is kicked up. And emotion will either drive you away from God or it will drive you to Him. And doesn't mean... He's the fix-all, but to be able to be honest and transparent, and vulnerable before the Lord and say, God, I'm in pain right now. Don't you care? It feels like you don't care. I've been in this for three months or three years or ten years, and I'm sick of it. Can we pray like that? The psalmist prays like that. And I think that's what God is teaching us in the midst of suffering seasons in the wilderness at the end of the day it's that we would know beyond head knowledge down into heart knowledge that we do not live by bread alone but we live by god Um, during our prayer time uh, before the service when we prayed before the service someone shared i believe it was psalm 63 Your love, because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's true. Your life is not bound up in. Your heartbeat. It's not bound up in your social status. It's not bound up in your material success. It's not bound up in how many Instagram followers you have. Your life is in Jesus Christ. And God is so profoundly committed to you not merely knowing those verses, but experiencing them holistically in your life. So that when the moment of temptation comes and you're suffering or you're afraid, you can say, the world is preaching to me something that's just not true. And Jesus, I want to stand with you. Would you help me? So in the midst of the wilderness, God's not only revealing who we are, He's revealing who He is. And there are more stories than I could count in here about the way that God has proven Himself faithful again and again and again. And sometimes the gap in the agains is really hard to make it through. So we need each other. We need community. And we need to be able to stand in confident faith that God will prove Himself true. He wants us to know that he is good. Jesus is true, he is the way the truth and the life we can count on him. The last thing, the third thing, God tests us not just so that we would know ourselves and we would know God, but here's the thing that I want you to leave with. That I want all of us to be thinking about today. God tests us that he might entrust God tests us that He might entrust greater power, resources, and influence to us for the sake of His kingdom. You, Christian, disciple, follower of Jesus, are God's plan A for the kingdom of God going forward wherever you are. Now, some of you are like, no, Jesus is! Jesus is! That's wrong! But when we downplay us and our ability to be used in the hand of God, because we're so flawed, weak, and faulty, we actually are downplaying the strength of God. We're actually downplaying Jesus' bigness. Because we're saying, "My me as a stick am so crooked that God can't use me to make straight lines. And that's not true. Ephesians 3 says that it's not true. It says that through the weakness of the church, God is showing off his power to the principalities and powers that previously ruled this world. And so the testing in the wilderness when in our text God says, I tested you to know what was in your heart, for I am bringing you into a land filled with riches. He's not just saying, I'm trying to give you a really comfy life, guys. <laughs> like it's going to be great. Just like just make it through for a while. No, God's plan for Israel was to be his people, a city set on a hill, to the to all the nations, that in their blessing, they would bless the nations. And so for you and for me, we need to get through into our hearts, not just that we need to know Jesus so that we can make it through this hard life, but we need to so know Jesus and be so humble before him that he could actually entrust to us the kind of spiritual authority as his ambassadors in the world that the Spirit would make people know, man, Jesus is all over them. They're speaking truth. If you don't believe me, uh, 2 Chronicles 16.9, say the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. 2 Timothy in the New Testament, Says that in a great house, we're referring to the church, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. If anyone cleanses themselves from what's dishonorable, they'll be a vessel for honorable use. If our vision of following Jesus dismisses the crucial nature of character, and Christ-likeness, it is an insufficient discipleship. Because in essence it's saying, Jesus is so loving, so forgiving, that He paid for my sins, and now I just get into heaven for free. And I'm just living it up, however, and God has to forgive me. When you're missing the point, Yes, God wants to save you and deal with your sin and make you right before him. But he wants to get heaven into you. That everywhere you go, people would say, there's something distinct here. That we would be a church. People are like, how are they so stinking generous? Like, that's crazy. Why do they give so much of their time away? Why are they so at peace and unity with each other? There are very different people in there. It's so that heaven itself, the presence of God dwelling among us, would radiate out from us into the darkness. And friends, there's no other way that people are going to turn to Jesus. They are so done in our culture and context with us just saying, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and Jesus died on the cross for your sins if you want to come to him. We're we're beyond that epoch in American history. People are going to need to see the proof and the effectiveness in and through us. As we wrap up, the next few verses give us really the alternative. If we choose to ignore God's invitation to participate with him in the wilderness, it's not written down in your handout, but if you have a Bible or an app, you can read with me Deuteronomy eight, eleven through 19. I'm going read to read this, give us a few questions for reflection, and then we'll move into prayer and worship. This is what the very next verses say. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes. One thing that I didn't do a good job in the last 30 minutes of is um, scripture ties together love for God and obedience to God. You cannot say you love God and willfully disobey Him. That's just throughout the whole New Testament throughout the whole Old Testament. 1 John 3 says we can't say we love God who we can't see if we don't love our brothers and sisters who we can't see. Jesus Himself said, If anyone loves me, he will obey my commandments, and my Father and I will come to him and manifest ourselves to him. That's why here God is saying, Remembering God is obeying God, okay? just want to make sure we're clear on that. Verse 12, Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when you herd, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you and do you good to do you good in the end. Always know testing is for the purposes of God doing us more good in the end. Verse 17, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Um, There are only two routes in following Jesus. There's the route of seeking to participate with him and allowing him to form us and seeking to strive day by day to know him more, follow him and serve him. Or the route that will inevitably lead us to this place of forgetting who God is, and subverting that paradigm, and rather than cultivating humility underneath God, pride over God, and being able to say, I earned all this in my life. When God might not entrust you with with real riches in the world, like money, that might not be in your future. That's not what he's promising here. But what he does hold out for us is the promised land, not in ancient Israel, but the promised land of knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ day by day while you walk this earth. And the kind of real meaningful authority that comes from true lived knowledge that you could witness to people saying, Jesus is alive, and it's in him that we find life. And you can follow him too, and I would love to help you in that couple questions that we can reflect on. First one's regarding humility. Simply asking, where's my heart being exposed right now? Where's my heart being exposed right now? Second one regarding obedience. Where am I being tested to obey God right now? And the third one regarding power Um, Am I being controlled by a vision of being useful to God in the world, being used by Jesus in the world? Is that my chief aim? Okay? Wilderness is purpose, And so we're committed as a people to growing, learning, being a church that's honest about it, but that's ambitious to know Jesus more through it, be used by him. Okay? I am so confident that as we keep coming out of and distance ourselves from COVID and the fall is here in our neighborhood, um, God has a lot that he would be willing to use us for. But the invitation is, will we be pure in our desire to know Jesus, serve Jesus, and be used by him? Okay, Do we want that? Do we want that to be our ambition? Remember, this is dynamic. It's okay to say no be honest about that. But I know many of you that that is absolutely your heart's desire. To know Jesus, to serve Jesus, and to be used by Jesus. Is that our desire? Yes. Know that that is who we are. You will not be alone in this place if that is your desire. Okay? So would you pray with me as the band comes up and gets ready to lead us, and we'll transition into taking the Lord's Supper and singing praise to Jesus. Um, Lord, that, that really is our desire. We want to be a church community that is known for loving you, Jesus, serving you, honoring you, living for you, And if it is in your will for us being used by you in our city, in our neighborhood, up on campus, in Westwood, all the way to the ends of the earth, wherever you may lead us in our life. And so you help us to be people who don't waste the wilderness, who are listening for your voice and your leading in our lives. And I pray for anyone in this room who is open to you, leading them, speaking to them, forming and shaping them. Um, Would you meet them really powerfully today? And with the rest of our gathering today, would you please be speaking to us? And as we pray, would um, you hear us, Lord, because of Jesus? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.